Good evening and welcome to this Outbeat Extra. I'm Greg Moralia. In May of 2010, we aired a story about homophobia in law enforcement. And almost five years have gone by now, and while we would like to think things have improved, a recent investigation by the San Francisco Police Department involving 10 of its own officers suggests maybe not. One of the most embarrassing scandals to hit the San Francisco Police Department in years is growing tonight. At least 10 additional officers including a captain, are under investigation for possibly sending racist and homophobic texts. Now, the new allegations follow a federal court filing that revealed five current and former police officers were texting those homophobic jokes and statements, texts supporting white power, and even suggesting that blacks should be spayed. Tonight, we'll revisit some of the interviews we did five years ago and hear from some new officers working in local agencies today. We'll also share with you the latest research from UCLA's Williams Institute on homophobia in law enforcement agencies around the country. All of this is coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, March 29th, 2015. I have found Outbeat Radio News, your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond. Indiana Governor Mike Pence signed into law Senate Bill 101, also known as the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, in a private ceremony this last Thursday. While supporters of the new law say it protects Hoosiers from unconstitutional government interference with one's exercise of religion, opponents have labeled it a license to discriminate, noting that the bill emboldens individuals and businesses to refuse service to LGBT people, or anyone else for that matter, who allegedly offends a citizen's sincerely held religious beliefs. The governor said, quote, Today I signed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act because I support the freedom of religion for every Hoosier of every faith. The Constitution of the United States and of Indiana both provide strong recognition of the freedom of religion. But today, many people of faith feel their religious liberty is under attack by government action. End quote. Just the day before, the CEO of the world's largest gaming convention, wrote an open letter to the governor saying the law's passage would prompt the event to reconsider hosting its annual gathering in Indianapolis, along with the estimated $50 million in revenue the conference brings to the state. While similar bills have been introduced in several conservative states that have been court-ordered to embrace marriage equality, only one state has signed such a bill into law, and that's Mississippi. And here in California, the Attorney General Kamala Harris moved this last Wednesday to block a proposed voter initiative that would mandate the execution of sexually active gay men and women, calling it patently unconstitutional and a threat to public safety. The Attorney General said she would ask the state Supreme Court in Sacramento to relieve her of having to write the title and summary for the Sodomite Suppression Act. The action would clear the way for the author, Matthew G. McLaughlin, a lawyer in Huntington Beach, to begin gathering signatures to get it onto the ballot. Harris said, quote, It's my sworn duty to uphold the California and United States Constitution and to protect the rights of all Californians. This proposal not only threatens public safety, it is patently unconstitutional, utterly reprehensible, and has no place in civil society, end quote. California law gives no discretion to the Attorney General in handling these kinds of initiatives. In her statement, Attorney General Harris signaled her absence of legal opinions as she threw the ball to the courts. She said if the court does not grant relief, she said my office will be forced to issue a title and summary for the proposal that seeks to legalize discrimination and vigilantism. Senator Ricardo Lara, a Democrat and a leader of the legislature's Gay and Lesbian Caucus, said, quote, The constitutionality of this measure is not debatable. 
It's outlandish, unjust, and out of line with California values, end quote. And here locally, a hillside home set among the trees above Guerneville's main drag burst into flames Wednesday afternoon, sending columns of fire and black smoke skyward as crowds of onlookers gathered to watch amid the blare of sirens. Because of its location on a steep wooded hill just overlooking Main Street, the fire and smoke were quickly visible. At least seven people began calling 911 around 12.10, and Russian River Fire, Forestville, Monterio, and Cal Fire firefighters responded. Friday's blaze consumed much of the two-story shake house, expanding so quickly through the wooden structures that appeared inevitable at one point that it would spread to nearby homes and wooded areas. Greg Petticord said, Good thing it's not in the heart of summertime. The whole hillside would have gone up. The house that burned, a duplex occupied by six people, four cats and a dog, has a Palo Alto Drive address, but is perched on a steep embankment overlooking Main Street, sitting about 50 feet above the road into town, just east of the downtown plaza. Russian River firefighters coming from just a couple blocks away arrived within three minutes of being dispatched to find flames coming out the front door. The fire was eventually extinguished and there were no reported injuries. Now here's your count of events for the coming week. On Monday, March 30th and every Monday at 5.30 p.m., the Petaluma Health Center will host an LGBT support group at 1179 North McDowell Boulevard in Petaluma. And on Tuesday, March 31st at 10 a.m., the Napa LGBT Older Adults Discussion Group will gather at the Queen of the Valley Community Center, 3448 Villa Lane in Napa. And also on Tuesday at 6 p.m., the Trans Group will host an open friends and family meeting at the Positive Images Center, 312 Chin Street in Santa Rosa. And on Wednesday, April 1st at 12 noon, the Petaluma General LGBT Support Group will happen at Casa Grande High School in Petaluma. This group is for youth between 12 and 18 years of age. For more information about LGBT events happening here in the North Bay, go to GaySonoma.com. And for all the latest LGBT news headlines, go to our website at OutBeatNews.com. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter for updates from OutBeat Radio News all week long. For Gary Carnavelli, I'm Greg Moralia. OutBeat Radio News, your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond. Of all the places in our society where we hope homophobia would be fading fast, it's in law enforcement. In the rank and file of those men and women we depend on to enforce our constitutional rights and to treat everyone equally as the 14th Amendment requires. But stories like the one surfacing this month in San Francisco signals that homophobia is alive and well. From Bay Area News Station KPIX, here's Phil Mateer with more. Phil Mateer joins us now with the fallout from all this. This shocks a lot of people, Phil. It does. It does. Now, those officers, at least the latest ones, have been taken off the street, and they're facing possible firing. And while the severity of the text linked to the 10 new officers is still under investigation, they say it's not as bad as the earlier ones. The scandal is already affecting the department from top to bottom. Okay, it it does appear that there's more officers uh, and more of my members involved in this because they have come to the POA seeking representation. That admission from the San Francisco Police Officers Association is the first hard evidence that the tech scandal is growing, confirming a day's worth of heated speculation even among members of the force. And we've told there may be as many as 15. Now I'm hearing there may be more people. But while we wait to learn just how many more officers could be involved, the Police Officers Association is making its own move with this video. I am Officer Albert Johnson. I am Sergeant Tracy McRae. 
and we are part of the most diverse police department in the world. No importa su etnicidad o orientación sexual. We are not about uh, these disgraceful messages that come from a, a, an extremely small faction of our department. We're talking less than 0.2% members involved. As for the four officers already implicated, the San Francisco public defender is already looking at convictions that may have to be thrown out. We estimate that there will be as many as a thousand cases uh, that will have to be reviewed. The district attorney has also joined in the review of those cases, just as the police department moves to question more officers. And no matter what turns up in the coming days, everyone is promising swift justice for any officers who cross the line. I believe we're all on the same page that we find this appalling and unacceptable, and we're not going to tolerate it. San Francisco Police Chief Greg Sir responded immediately and with a firm message saying that he will move to fire each and every one of the officers involved in sending the racist and homophobic text messages. And while the individuals involved in this investigation do in fact represent a very small number of the department, homophobia is still a pervasive problem in the profession across the country. In November of 2013, UCLA's Williams Institute published a study looking at homophobia within municipal and county law enforcement agencies, and they studied complaints and discrimination lawsuits filed by LGBT law enforcement personnel and concluded based upon the data that homophobia within the rank and file of law enforcement is, quote, pervasive throughout the country. And then in another Williams Institute study just released this month looking externally at the relationship between local police, and the LGBT community, the data showed exactly the same thing. Homophobia in law enforcement is pervasive across the country. Now, the data from these two studies is disturbing, to say the least. But as we shared in our story on this issue in 2010, change is happening, albeit slowly. Hi, I'm Jimmy Androskowitz. I'm a sergeant with the NYPD, and I have uh, been with the law enforcement world for about 25 years now. Hi, my name is Carol Hunter. I am a former deputy director of guidance and counseling services for the New York City Department of Correction. All in all, my history in law enforcement is almost 30 years. Jimmy, why don't you start out by telling us what was it like for you when you first got into law enforcement? Well, I have a bit of an interesting story because when I first joined back 25 years ago, I had no idea about my proclivities. So I actually joined law enforcement as a married man. And it wasn't until a few years later that the light went on. And so I had to um, figure myself out and then slowly figure out how am I going to let my friends know that this aspect of my life has changed. Now, what year was that? 1989, so it was like three or four years into my career. Carol, how about for you? What year did you get started, and, and what was it like going into this business? I was uh, recruited into the New York City Department of Correction around 1980, although for me, uh, my background is a little different in that I always knew I was gay, and uh, I was always uh, someone that was outwardly effeminate, uh, so it, it wasn't something that I could successfully hide and I didn't want to hide it anyway. So uh, I was out and openly gay when I was hired and remained out the entire time. I, I never really faced uh, overt discrimination within my agency because, um, because I, was, I, I was forceful and I was not going to be anybody's victim. I was not going to be the butt of humor for anyone, and no one was going to take advantage of me. And I knew what I was doing, and I did my job well. You know, Carol, you, I understand you were one of the pioneers in getting 
an association put together for gay and lesbian officers. Tell us a little bit about the history of that. I'm not uh, one of the people that uh, founded the organization. I joined the organization after it had been in existence, I think, for about five years, and then I served just under four years as president uh, in the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, today, uh, I mean, the Gay Officers Action League is the first agency that's been formed, but today uh, it has morphed into many, many other uh, LGBT criminal justice fraternal organizations around the country, and several in other countries that I, I, I was particularly involved in forming. Yeah. What was sort of the impetus for this association to form? Well, you must understand that uh, all, uh, all, fraternal, all law enforcement fraternal organizations are formed because a group of people see there's a need. For example, uh, the Guardians Association in New York City, and the organization represents African Americans, they were formed because African Americans felt that there was a need. They saw discrimination against them in law enforcement and other places, and they banded together to have those issues addressed. The same thing applies to other organizations, uh, like other heterosexual organizations, like the Emerald Society and, and the Hispanic Club and, uh, and things like that. These organizations are all formed to address the needs, issues, and concerns of specific groups of people in law enforcement. The gay well, I think... Well, go ahead, Carol, but there's something I want to add to that. Okay. The Gay Officers Action League was formed under that same kind of guise because gay people thought, and rightfully so, that there was a need to have an organization because they were being marginalized, discriminated against, and put upon by the criminal justice agency. So they banded together and put this organization in place. Well, you have to realize that the climate at the time, we're talking about the late 70s, early 80s in New York City, um, NYPD, and, and I preface this by saying, although I am employed by the uh, New York City Police Department, in no way do I speak for them. Yeah. Uh, they have people that can do that very readily for themselves. Yeah. But um, just speaking uh, from my own observations and my own experience, this founding member, uh, Charles Cochran, was a sergeant at the time, and he needed to step forward because the, the atmosphere within the, uh, the department then was... Hostile doesn't even begin to describe oh. it. Yeah, and I, I forget yeah. which, which um, official actually came out and said that there are absolutely no gay people within the NYPD, although the term was probably homosexual or something a little bit more uh, uh, derisive at the yes. time. Yes. And he felt at that point that he could take no more and that it was time for somebody to pick up the ball here and run with it. So... He consulted with a couple of his friends and got his courage up and actually testified before the city council here in New York City, which then sent shockwaves across the country and set the ball in motion. And it was wonderful. And that was, that was probably in November of 81, and they were able to incorporate the organization just a few months later in April. You know, these organizations have obviously grown. They're net, they now exist throughout the country and in other parts of the world. Give us a sense of, of how many there are and, you know, where you see the, the trend going. Are, do you see more of these coming about? Oh, I, 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 see, I see many more coming about as time goes by. For example, uh, right now uh, we're, we're, we're chatting with a young fellow in Iowa who is working to put together the Gay Overs Action League of Iowa. And yeah. don't think that it's just been an easy road where every chapter that begins um, to incorporate actually follows through with it, because no. I think it depends on the 
the climate in right. that community right. at the time. Well, let's, yeah. let, me, let me ask you a, a question then about a specific organization, Chicago, for example. Yes. Give us a sense of, of how many members exist in the Gay Officers Action League in Chicago. I'm, I'm sure that it is well over 100. Uh, I was just talking with, uh, with their president, uh, Jamie Richardson, uh, of the uh, Chicago chapter. They're putting together the annual conference right. uh, this June coming up in Chicago. You know, just the fact that you, you're mentioning this, uh, the uh, conferences is earth-shattering, to, to be honest with you, because yeah. this is going to be the fourth a- uh, 14th annual excuse me, yes, the 14th uh, annual. conference. And that's outrageous to, to think about, considering that when we put together the first one here in New York City, and Carol oh, yeah. was the point man for that. Yeah, I was present um, those days, yeah. There was no support from any actual organization or, or, or any official department. Uh, we were doing it on a wing and a prayer. And I bet that the majority of people coming to that conference were there with a lot of fear because they weren't out yet on the job. Almost definitely. Well, you know, to this very day, at the conferences, when we, uh, when we stop to take the group photo of the participants, there are always some people who say that they don't want to be in the photo, and so they stand to the side because they, you know, because they, they, they're, not out, uh, they're not out in their department. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they're not out in their department is because it's fear. And the fear is not imagined. It's palpable, and it's real. Right. But I think that fear exists in every single person, whether or not your organization is viable and accepted. Because the coming out process, as you know, is, uh, you know, is many-faceted. And, I mean, my own experience, I remember working the Gay Pride March here in New York City, which they call the Heritage of Pride Parade. I was one of the officers on the sidelines, just, you know, keeping order and everything. And as the Gay Officers Action League then marched past us, this is probably in 1990, 91, yeah. I quietly walked over to one of the sergeants involved, and I just shook his hand, and I said, thank you so much. Uh, and I could uh, see it in his eye. He realized what I was saying to him, and he quietly yes. slipped me a business card and said, call us. Right, exactly. And that's what gave me the courage to finally come forward and join the organization. So everybody's going to have that experience of slowly working their way into it. I don't know. I mean, it could be a generational thing. It could be something where people today are so comfortable in their own skin that they can jump right out of the academy and say, hey, here I am. But I didn't have that experience. Milotello. I am a San Francisco police lieutenant, currently assigned to the Night Watch Commander uh, of Tenderloin Station in San Francisco. Uh, in March, I will begin my 30th year with the SFPD. Wow, 30 years. Well, you started your law enforcement career at the San Francisco Police Department in 1980, just a few years after the gay community really started to emerge. What was it like for you coming into law enforcement as a new officer then? You know, I think it had a couple of challenges because First of all, I was a woman, and women hadn't been, you know, in the department all that long, just a couple of years when I came in. And then the second thing is I was a lesbian. Kind of had two issues to deal with, and it wasn't the easiest. I mean, I have to be candid. It was uh, a little rough in the beginning. I can imagine. Well, as you saw women come out on the job, did you also see men coming out on the job at the same rate? I think the way that I can answer that question is to say that I, you know, that I think it's more difficult for gay men. Uh, law enforcement, at least back then, was typically very male-dominated. 
Um, and, you know, it, it's kind of one thing to be a lesbian, but to come out as a gay man in a male-dominated field, pretty much straight male-dominated field, um, it's difficult because uh, I think the men had a, a harder time um, with it. I mean, I think they just had more things to deal with. So I think the guys were, came out, but, you know, the ones that did, um, I think were pretty courageous. And they stuck to their guns, and we pushed forward, and, you know, that leads us to kind of where we are today. I think it is much better now. Do I, do I think it's, the problems still exist? Sure. Uh, not nearly to the level that they did back in 1981 when I came in. But um, I think no matter how you look at this, this subject, it's, guys have had a harder time back then. I still see today, even though all of the advances that we've, we've made as a police department, and I think we've just, you know, I like to think that we're one of the more incredible police departments in the country in terms of dealing with LGBT issues and and having LGBT members of the department, you know, and so, but still even today, Greg, I see guys that are reluctant to come out of the closet. And that's still, that saddens me because I, I wish it wasn't so, but, but it is. You've had a wonderfully successful career and have promoted now to the rank of lieutenant. In your time in the department, how have you seen gay men and women fare in the promotional process? Well, um, I think I think uh, gay women are much further along, and I, I think that there are some reasons for that. Um, and I think you've heard me speak publicly many times, but one of the issues that um, we were faced with as a police department is, you know, in the 80s and 90s, the AIDS crisis hit, um, you know, hit the San Francisco PD pretty hard. And we lost about 80% of our gay men to AIDS during that time period. And that was kind of the time period when people were testing and beginning to move up the ranks. You know, it, I always say and believe in my heart that had many of those men survived the AIDS crisis during that time, we would clearly have minimally a deputy chief that is a gay man. I, I mean, I just think, you know, the problem is it, it wiped out 80% of the gay men in our ranks. So when you are down those kinds of numbers, you know, it creates a disparity in terms of, of promotion. And so, you know, one, one of our goals now um, in the Pride Alliance is to mentor some of these gay men to get them to jump into the promotional process and test. And we're beginning to see it. And, um, you know, I'm happy about that. And I think it's just unfortunately because of what we endured in the 80s and 90s, I think it's, it's a much slower process. But, you know, we, for instance, we had a recent sergeant's exam, and, you know, many of our members who are gay men did quite well on it. So I'm proud of that. And, you know, I want to see us where we can have some parity in, in that because I think, you know, I mean, we had a lesbian that rose to the rank of deputy chief, and we've had two lesbian commanders, and it's time for gay men. You mentioned some mentoring being provided to the younger gay male officers by the San Francisco Police Officers Pride Alliance, and I understand you're the president of that organization. Tell us a little bit about why it was formed and and how large the organization is. You know, we really did it to sort of fight for our rights. I mean, it was, you know, we had many members that sort of felt just that the Police Officers Association as a whole wasn't representing their interests, and so we decided to go off on our own, and we started this organization, and I'm proud to say now we have um, a little less than 250 members, and it's made up of the LGBT officers of the SFPD, 
um, retired members as well as um, active members. And I'm proud of it because it's we've come a long way with it. It started out slowly, and now I'm excited. I mean, if you go to the LGBT parade, you see us marching in the parade, and, you know, we encourage people to bring their partners. And, you know, we have social events. We mentor people throughout the promotional process. So it, it's just... Um, it's a great organization, and I'm, you know, I'm proud of the cops for embracing it and and making it what it is. Well, I think it's great LGBT officers have an organization right in their own department to lean on for mentoring and the type of guidance you're talking about. You know, you've you've said many times uh, how much you enjoy going to work every day, and after 30 years on the job, tell us what keeps you motivated. You know, I think the bottom line, Greg, is I love is I love the job. You know, I mean, uh, police work. Is something I've wanted to do since I was a little kid, and it's what I always tell my son, you know, you should embrace and do something you love, because your work life is so much a part of, A, who you are, and B, how you spend your time, and if you hate what you do, it makes for a pretty miserable existence. started out, like I said, pretty rough, and then we've done a lot of things over the years, and, you know, I, I'm, I, I think the thing that's so great for me to see is when younger LGBT officers come into the police department, you know, they're able to sort of be who they are. And, you know, the bottom line for me is I, I just love the job of being a police officer. And as you start to move up the ranks, you can affect the lives of, you know, the cops that work for you. And one thing that I've always prided myself on and tried to, to do going forward is to never forget where you come from. In other words... You know, you were once a rookie getting in the seat of a radio car and going call to call to call, and, you know, those are the things that you got to kind of hold on to going forward so that you can embrace the cops that work for you. I can't think of myself doing anything else. Well, that's pretty impressive to hear after 30 years on any job. Well, as you look back on your career and all that you've learned and all that you've seen, if you had all of the chiefs and sheriffs in one room, what advice would you give them about making law enforcement a more accepting place for gay and lesbian officers? I think, first of all, what I would say to them is that LGBT police officers are just like any other police officer. Perhaps they have a little bit more in, in, in that the things that they've endured throughout their lives and, and their community connection. I think that law enforcement leaders need to treat LGBT officers and give them the same opportunities that they would any other police officer. And if allegations of harassment or things like that come to your attention, you need to deal with it expeditiously, nip it in the bud, and send a very clear message. Because I think when those types of things are allowed to fester and, and move on, it, that's when the environment, you know, creates, it, it, it just it makes it not a good place for gay cops. And, you know, quite frankly, I think gay cops are some of the most talented people in law enforcement today. Nobody asks for special treatment, so my advice to them would be treat gay cops just like you would any other cop. Give them the same opportunity that you would give any other cop. Treat their, if they come to you with an issue, treat those issues seriously and quickly and send a message, and for that you will have a better police department. Gay men and women have always been among the rank and file of law enforcement and are becoming more visible and out every day. Lee Melatello, who you just heard from, was promoted to commander at the San Francisco Police Department and retired from the department just a year ago. The organization she led, the San Francisco Pride Alliance, has over 200 members. In a public statement, they condemned the racist and homophobic text messages and called for a swift and firm investigation.
But what about the First Amendment rights of those officers and the right to privacy and personal text messages? One of the attorneys representing one of the officers said, quote, they were just blowing off steam. Should law enforcement officers be given that kind of latitude? Well, I can tell you after working in the law enforcement profession for some 35 years, starting at the age of 15, and having to hide being gay for 25 of those years, I can say absolutely not. A fundamental responsibility of a police officer is to protect the constitutional rights of us all. They're charged with enforcing the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which demands equal protection under the law. Police officers are given a unique level of authority and to make independent decisions about our own liberties and in how they enforce the law. Bigotry, racism, and homophobia have no place in the hearts and minds of those law enforcement officers we entrust with such awesome power and authority. The job is tough, and the expectations are great, just as Detective Joe Friday from the classic police drama Dragnet explains to this rookie. The story you are about to see is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a college man. She'd like to have seen you land a job with a little more status attached, is that it? I guess that's part of it. But not all of it. I think maybe I can understand how she feels. And maybe she's right, Culver. It's awkward having a policeman around the house. Friends drop in, a man with a badge answers the door. The temperature drops 20 degrees. You throw a party and that badge gets in the way. All of a sudden, there isn't a straight man in the crowd. Everybody's a comedian. Don't drink too much, somebody says, and the man with a badge will run you in. Or how's it going, Dick Tracy? How many jaywalkers did you pinch today? And then there's always the one who wants to know how many apples you stole. All at once, you lost your first name. You're a cop, a flatfoot, a bull, a dick, John Law. You're the fuzz, the heat, your poison, your trouble, your bad news. They call you everything, but never a policeman. It's not much of a life unless you don't mind missing a Dodger game because the hotshot phone rings. Unless you like working Saturdays, Sundays, holidays, at a job that doesn't pay overtime. Oh, the pay's adequate. If you count your pennies, you can put your kid through college. But you better plan on seeing Europe on your television set. And then there's your first night on the beat. When you try to arrest a drunken prostitute in a Main Street bar and she rips your new uniform to shreds, you'll buy another one out of your own pocket. And you're going to rub elbows with all the elite. Pimps, addicts, thieves, bums, winos, girls who can't keep an address and men who don't care, liars, cheats, con men. The class of Skid Row and the heartbreak. Underfed kids, beaten kids, molested kids, lost kids, crying kids, homeless kids, hit and run kids, broken arm kids, broken leg kids, broken head kids, sick kids, dying kids, dead kids, the old people that nobody wants, the reliefers, the pensioners, the ones who walked the street cold and those who tried to keep warm and died in a $3 room with an unvented gas heater. You'll walk your beat and try to pick up the pieces. Do you have real adventure in your soul, Culver? You better have, because you're going to do time in a prowl car. Oh, it's going to be a thrill a minute when you get an unknown trouble call and hit a backyard at two in the morning, never knowing who you'll meet. A kid with a knife, a pillhead with a gun, or two ex-cons with nothing to lose. And you're going to have plenty of time to think. You'll draw duty in a lonely car, but nobody to talk to but your radio. Four years in uniform, you'll have the ability, the experience, and maybe the desire to be a detective. If you like to fly by the seat of your pants, this is where you belong. The story you have just seen is true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. If you're just joining us, you're listening to an Outbeat Extra on KRCB-FM Windsor, Santa Rosa. I'm Greg Moralia. 
Well, tonight we're exploring homophobia in law enforcement. And so far, we've heard from some pioneers who were the first to come out as gay and lesbian on the job. But the good news about 2015 is that out lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people are working in law enforcement agencies throughout the greater Bay Area and in many parts of the country. In fact, lesbian and gay people are serving as chiefs of police in cities like Richmond, El Cerrito, San Rafael, and Healdsburg. San Quentin State Prison just fielded its first transgender woman as a correctional officer, and more officers are coming out every day. My name is Alex Holm. I'm 26 years old. I've worked in law enforcement for seven years and been a police officer for four years. So tell us when you first got interested in law enforcement. I've been interested in law enforcement since I can remember. While growing up in Wisconsin, one of my neighbors was a captain with the city of Madison Police Department. I remember listening to his stories and being intrigued with his work. As I got older, I continued to be interested in law enforcement, both by the excitement and my desire to be creative in solving problems. To me, law enforcement's really about solving problems, and the challenge is a lot of fun. When you discovered you were gay, did you have any concerns about how that might impact your career in law enforcement? I actually never thought about its impact on my career until I began to meet other people in law enforcement. That was about the same time I applied to work at the agency in which I work now, and because I was relatively young, I decided that if the agency didn't want to hire me because I was gay, I wouldn't want to work there anyway. So how did you end up coming out at the police department? I never really had to come out because I was completely honest with my sexuality from, from day one. I was completely honest in my background, and it pretty much flowed into how I communicated at work. I never really came out and said, hey, I'm gay, but I never lied about it. Everyone knows now. So you actually started working at the police department before you went to the police academy itself. When you went to the academy, how did you end up coming out to your fellow students? I really wasn't close with anyone in particular, and I didn't talk about uh, my personal life very much. Not because I was concerned about what people would think, but more because I was concentrating on completing a very difficult task that the academy was. Although I never lied to anyone, I never came out and told anyone about my sexuality until the very end. On one of the last days of the academy, we were given an opportunity to speak about any topic, and I thought it was important to let people know that I was gay. I knew that most everyone would be going off to different agencies and working for different police departments. I felt that everyone should understand that they had learned that I was I really wasn't any different from anyone else, and I was confident that they would bring that to their agency and treat everyone the same way. Well, you've obviously had a very, very successful career. Since the time you were a student here, you've come back to the academy as an instructor. If you could talk to other gay students now knowing what you've learned, what advice would you give them about coming out at work? Well, law enforcement's a very stressful environment to begin with. We become very close with our coworkers for lots of reasons, and I think it's important to be honest with yourself as well as your coworkers in order to build and maintain a positive work environment. Without env- that environment, you know, it can be even more stressful and unnecessarily so. My name is Ben Smith. I work for the San Francisco Police Department. Uh, I've been there for about two and a half years. You and I started our careers at the same police department. What was it like for you walking in the door of the agency as a cadet who happened to be gay but not out? I didn't. I didn't put the two together at the time. I knew I was gay. I just figured uh, I was very excited about being a cadet. I was very excited about getting involved in law enforcement, and the idea of being out at the time was absolutely foreign to me. So uh, it, it was. It was two separate things. You know, being gay was one thing, and wanting to get involved in law enforcement was a separate thing. 
So then you went off to college, and then you came back to the same police department and were sent to the academy. What was the academy experience like for you? It was stressful, as I'm sure all academies are. Um, but looking back on it, it was a very good experience. You know, it was also a means to an end. You know, the academy is the academy, and the goal is to become a police officer, and that's what I did. Um, but overall, it was positive. I, don't, I, I can't think of anything bad about it. Well, you were very successful in the police academy. I mean, you graduated number one in your class. How did it go for you in field training? Well, again, uh, field training is never fun, but I got through it. And uh, after field training, I had a great, a, a great time in my first few years as a police officer in Walnut Creek. Now, at this point in your career, were you out on the job in Walnut Creek? No, I, I always knew that I was gay from a very young age, um, but I never went out uh, and dated or anything like that until I was about 24. So I had actually been a police officer for a couple years uh, prior to even uh, dating anybody. And so that was, that was a bit strange. And then uh, once I did start dating, I didn't feel comfortable being out at all. Um, no one suspected I was gay, and I wasn't about to tell them. So I pretty much led uh, two separate lives uh, for the entire time that I, that I worked uh, in my first apartment at Walnut Creek. So what changed that enabled you to make the decision to eventually be able to come out uh, on the job? Well, as I got older, I guess part of it is being a little more comfortable with yourself, but part of it is also I was living these two lives, and I was becoming uncomfortable with that, and I realized that eventually people would either find out about me or uh, I would just not be happy living these uh, these dual lives. So I decided that you know, at some point this has to end. I have to, I have to be honest with, not so much with myself, because I was already honest with myself, but I have to be honest with other people. And I think that's when um, I started making plans to, to rectify that. So when you left Walnut Creek PD to go to San Francisco PD, was that because you were gay or were you looking for more excitement and career opportunities? It, it was a mix of both. Uh, I mean, there were several reasons that I left. I, I had a great time in Walnut Creek. I have nothing bad to say about uh, Walnut Creek. But I was starting to get bored professionally. But definitely the number one reason was uh, because I was gay and I, I, I wanted to kind of I wanted to be able to include my personal life in my professional life, at least in the sense where I wasn't hiding. I don't feel that I ever lied while I was working in Walnut Creek as far as making up stories about having a girlfriend or anything like that, but I just wasn't comfortable uh, being who, who I am. So what have you found different about working at the two departments? Well, San Francisco is huge. It's a very large department, and Walnut Creek is much smaller. There's, there's many open gay males and lesbians at San Francisco PD, and I think that's the biggest comfort for me, and I, I realized that going into it. So when I left Walnut Creek and went to San Francisco, I, I made a commitment to myself that I was going to be completely open from day one, and I was, and I haven't had anything but positive feedback from that. And last year, I uh, marched in the Pride Parade with my partner in full uniform, so it's, it's been a great transition. Moving to San Francisco and coming out, I've had nothing but support from my former partners in Walnut Creek, so it's kind of ironic that it took, it took the move, and now I'm out at Walnut Creek. If you had all of the chiefs of police departments the size of Walnut Creek all in one room, and you could talk to them about being a chief in a department with gay employees and gay police officers, what advice would you give them to make their department a better place? I think it's very important for them to realize that there are many gay officers in their department already. If they realize that and they acknowledge that, I think the environment will become uh, better for the, the gay officers that are there. The biggest fear for me was isolation. Originally thinking that I was the only gay male officer you know, in the whole country, and then now I've got several at my station. 
So it's not a matter of waiting until you hire a gay police officer. It's knowing that those officers are likely already there. And if they're not out, asking yourself, why is it that they don't feel comfortable coming out? Absolutely. And I think that's kind of the same thing that's going on with the military now. I mean, there's countless gay men and women in the military now, and we're just now starting to deal with the uh, don't ask, don't tell policy. And I think uh, law enforcement has had an unspoken don't don't ask, don't tell policy uh, for many years. And I think we're, we're changing that now. These are two conversations I had in 2010. Officer Holm is still working successfully on the job, and Ben Smith, the officer you just heard, was promoted to sergeant at the San Francisco Police Department and continues to thrive. But it hasn't been easy for every gay officer who's come out on the job. As UCLA's Williams Institute 2013 study showed, workplace harassment and discrimination against LGBT employees continues to be a huge problem. In fact, Law enforcement agencies rank the highest in all municipal agencies in the number of discrimination cases involving gender and sexual orientation. My name is Adam Berkey. I'm 30 years old, and I worked in law enforcement for about 15 years at the Huntington Beach Police Department in Orange County, California. My career in law enforcement began as a volunteer for a program known as Search and Rescue, which is a combined police and fire explorer program through Boy Scouts, though run by the city of Huntington Beach. During my early years, even I didn't know who I was. But as time passed and I began to explore the true me, coming out was not an option. I heard gay bashing from just about everyone I knew, including my friends, family, and people I worked with. I was afraid that if anyone found out, I'd lose my job and my family and would become an outcast. Most of the incidents that happened while I was at work were either in briefing or the locker room. One night, when I was changing out for my uniform to go home, I found someone had put a gay sex escort ad in the front pocket of my jeans. It devastated me on many levels. I felt so many emotions all at once, from sadness to anger to embarrassment. I couldn't understand why these people I considered my friends and family were making such an effort to belittle me, out me, and push me away from them. I didn't want to be out for obvious reasons and thought my sexuality had nothing to do with the job. In the briefing room, where there were at times more than 20 officers, including upper management, other cops would make jokes about there being a fight involving gays at my house or how on my days off I was masturbating to little boys playing tennis as I watched them through binoculars. Most everyone would laugh, including me, while trying to shrug it off, but it was tearing me apart inside. Another incident involved a week-long arrest and control training class I was assigned to. In this incident, the instructor and my partner, who'd been a longtime friend who I'd grown up with in the Explorer and Cadet program, chose to turn the training into a gay bashing ritual. We had to get into some very intimate positions while grappling on the ground, which found my partner on top of or behind me simulating various sexual positions while moaning my name to the class who'd become onlookers. My eventual coming out was not on my terms. It took me years to realize I was no longer going to allow others to treat me in such ways and decided I'd had enough. There was no escaping the rumors that had been spread over the years and all the incidents that had piled upon one another. Though I had made several attempts over the years at making complaints, All were brushed off or swept under the carpet. The last attempt was going to my patrol supervisor, who eventually told me he couldn't do anything to stop the comments. I was no longer willing to accept that as an answer and bypassed the chain of command going right to the chief. I was in his office the next day and began the interview process within 15 minutes of speaking with him. The harassment, however, only got worse. I lost my job as an explorer advisor, which was about a $1,000 a month reduction in pay and continued to be subjected to unfair disciplinary actions and being treated differently. 
I had been assigned to the detective bureau, and at first they wouldn't even give me a car to do my job. When I complained, they gave me the most disgusting one they could find. Since the department was clearly unwilling to make changes and continued perpetrating the behavior I was no longer willing to accept, I filed a lawsuit and settled with the city before the case ever went to trial. The most important lesson I took from all of my experiences was how the officers I worked with became my greatest teachers. In showing me how much they hated me, they also showed me how much I hated myself, and it was up to me and my journey in life to love and accept me for who I am. Cases like Adam's are not unique. Another one we reported on in 2010 happened in the city of Roseville Police Department, just east of Sacramento. This one involving three officers. Three officers within the Roseville Police Department say they tried for two years to stop what they call widespread discrimination of openly gay officers and those perceived as gay, but it didn't work. So now they're suing to stop it and they're letting everyone know about it. City is not playing a fair game here. All the officers are not on a fair playing field. Roseville Police Sergeant Darren DeFries, Officer Ken Marler, and former Officer Michael Lackle have filed this 31-page lawsuit claiming members of the command staff here at the Roseville Police Department have zero tolerance for any officers who are openly gay or perceived as gay. The department tries to really have this clean-cut image, but once you get within the department, it's ugly. Joy Rosenquist represents the officers. Marler is the only one who's openly gay. Lackle and DeFries are both bisexual and married to women. DeFries alleges in the lawsuit that a supervisor said he was gay and that his marriage to a woman was a sham, entered into for the purpose of advancing in the department. Ken Marler alleges nobody in management would even talk to him. They treat him as if he's infectious. And Michael Lackle says his supervisors encouraged him to disclose he was gay or at least bisexual. If you're perceived to be gay, or if you are gay, you're treated differently, you're marginalized, and you can't promote in this department. The lawsuit claims that at least two of the officers complained to the police chief, Mike Blair, but allege he did nothing to help them, or stop the retaliation that followed. We gave the city many opportunities through investigations, tort claim notices, letters offering to discuss this in private, it was no at every turn, and our only option now is to litigate this publicly. And as of tonight, the city has not received a copy of this lawsuit, but late today, their spokesman did offer this comment. We're absolutely committed for, with, for everybody in the organization to being treated with dignity and respect. We don't have any room, no tolerance in the organization for anything less. So that is the official on-camera comment, but off-camera, one source did tell me the city believes the allegations are baseless and they look forward to fighting it. Sam, two of the three officers involved in the lawsuit are still on the force as of tonight. The harassment discrimination in this case actually happened over an eight-year period. The case settled out of court for an undisclosed amount. Officer Lackle left before the case concluded. Sergeant DeFries remained on the job and just recently retired. Officer Ken Marler passed away earlier this year. So what's the answer to ridding law enforcement of homophobia? How can this problem be fixed? Well, I don't believe that the answers are easy. Strong laws and policies prohibiting harassment and discrimination in the workplace are truly important, and swift and firm responses to misconduct like we saw from Chief Greg Sur in response to the racist and homophobic text messages in his department, will always be important. But laws, policies, and terminations are reactive. 
and they don't change the hearts and minds of offenders. In my opinion, training, education, and awareness are the best ways to do this. And the good news is that it's happening in law enforcement, and it's making a difference. I sat down with Napa Police Academy Director Damien Sandoval. So tell us about how training at the police academy has changed and evolved over the years. There's a greater comfort discussing gender roles, gender identity. I think there's more knowledge now with the students coming in. They have more access to information. Now, I understand at the Napa Academy that you do a community policing project of sorts. Tell us a little bit about that. It's, it's a project that really is a cross-cultural research endeavor that requires the students in small groups of two, three, to go out into the community and immerse themselves into a culture that they are least familiar with, given certain parameters for selection of culture. We are asking our students to lean into the discomfort that is associated with growth, because we believe that the field that they're getting into is very much a human relations field, and they must be very comfortable navigating cultures that are different from theirs, that are they are less familiar with, but yet have some acquaintance with and have some dexterity, if you will, some sort of competency around that sort of interface. In your time at the academy, both as an instructor and as a director, uh, have you witnessed any students coming out to their fellow classmates? I absolutely have, and that has been a shift. I know that in the past, well, it's been my suspicion in the past that there was people didn't come out simply because there wasn't a comfort level. Over the last couple of years, we do a survey that asks our students to guess about who is present in the room with them. It's an anonymous survey, and it kind of provides a climate in the classroom of knowledge and personal philosophy about what is present in the room, who is present in the room. The results of that survey have really given a venue for people to come out anonymously. Ultimately, in the classroom discussion, it tends to emerge. That is, our identities, our orientations tend to emerge, and there has been a great increase in the comfort level in those discussions um, to the point that people are able to say things like, this is who I am. My name is Anthony Morgado. I'm a deputy sheriff at the Solano County Sheriff's Office. Anthony, what drew you to a law enforcement career? I'm at a young age, as far back as I can remember. Um, my mom took me to San Francisco, and uh, I ended up seeing a San Francisco police officer. And I don't know since that ever since that day, I was just it came to me. I had to be a, a police officer, so that's just from a young age. So, did this trip happen before you knew you were gay? I would say yes, um, as far back as I can remember. Um, I pretty much knew I was gay before I even knew what the word gay meant. It's kind of a strange feeling you, you feel towards someone else. and So yeah, I would say before, before I knew I was gay, I knew I wanted to be a cop. Okay, so your, your passion for law enforcement came first, and then you realized who, in fact, you are, that, that you're a gay man. And when you came to that realization, now having this passion for law enforcement... Did you ever get worried that that might get in the way, that you wouldn't be hired or that you wouldn't be accepted? Not till um, I became a police cadet. Um, it was when I became a police cadet at the age of 13 is where I really started to experience the homophobia in law enforcement and knew that even existed. So once, once I became a cadet and saw the homophobia, um, that's when I realized this may, my secret may hinder me. So you spent eight years as a police cadet experiencing what you described as homophobia in your department, and then it came time to go to the police academy, and, and you put yourself through as a student. 
But then you decided to come out, and, and you not only came out for the first time to the whole world, but you came out to your class, to your fellow cadets during the academy in class. Well, it was kind of a surreal story. Um, during the police academy, I met um, for the first time in my life a gay uh, police officer, which was Greg Morelia, you. Um, and so that was a huge open door for me. I truly believed I was going to be the only gay cop in the world. I mean, I grew up in Solano County. Um, very sheltered to Solano County, so that's all I really knew in my life was Solano County. Um, so meeting you was a huge eye-opener for me. Through the help of the academy and my classmates becoming a family, I and mean, I still speak to many of them today, as to when I was able to really feel comfortable in coming out to my class for the first time in my life. Through the academy, we had uh, the Community-Oriented Policing Project, um, and my group ended up studying gay youth. And so we had present to our class our findings about gay youth and kind of how that community works. And so at the end of our presentation, it was three of us in my group, um, we all told the class why we picked that subject. And so I was the last one to go, and uh, I finally came up with the courage to the very last second to finally just um, tell the class why I picked it and then um, basically came out. And uh, what a surreal story that was. That was something truly special. So how did the class react? Well, I think with, I believe there was 30 students in the class. I don't think there was one dry eye. They actually had, I had a standing ovation. Um, Everyone hugged me at the end. Something that I would have never expected in a million years to happen. It It was something truly special. Well, you had to have known at least at some level that your class was going to accept you for you to take that kind of risk. What about the academy environment signaled to you that it was going to be okay, that in fact you could come out and be yourself and that you would be accepted, in this case with a standing ovation? Well, I think one thing, I mean, it was very well known since day one, it was zero tolerance for any type of bullying or hate. Um, I think that helps. Um, I think the support staff around the academy being so accepting, being open about it, helped. And then just the bonding and the um, becoming a family as a class. You learn who your classmates are. Like I said, I still speak to many of them today. You spend eight hours every day with them, and you, you become close. After graduating the academy, talk about how hard it was then to get a job. Did you face homophobia? Did you get turned down because people knew you were gay? Well, I was never shy. After I came out, I was never shy when I applied. Um, actually, a few of the interviews I had, I wanted to make it very well known when I applied in the county because I knew the home phobia was there and I didn't want something to come up afterwards. Now that I've been hired, it I've had nothing but accepting and accepting people and it's, it's all been really good. And that is so great to hear. And I think it's even more significant because you are in fact the first openly gay male deputy in the history of Solano County. And this is a county that had a very high percentage of votes for Proposition 8 that took away the rights of same-sex couples to marry, and a county that has a reputation of not necessarily being entirely accepting of LGBT people. What's it been like for you so far on the job? You know, um, it's been great so far. Um, I think as long as, and I think this goes for any race, sexual orientation, um, the job in law enforcement, you have to stay kind of mutual. So long as you don't throw things in people's faces, I think majority of the people are uh, accepting and opening. I mean, I haven't, I have never had anyone call me um, any type of names or try to single me out because of my sexual orientation. It's not that I try to hide it. It's because 
through the job, you just kind of have to stay mutual. You have to just kind of blend in, just kind of do your job and put your personal differences behind you. So what do you think the answer is? How are we going to get rid of homophobia in law enforcement? Uh, I think there needs to be awareness. Um, I think there's just there's a lot of individuals who are uneducated, who are not aware. And I think once that starts to happen, I think I mean, we're already starting to see a huge change in law enforcement just based off the Supreme Court decisions, just how things are going in general, what the population shows. I mean, there's so much more gay, if you will, it seems like in the world. It's been in the media a lot. And I think that's helping people see we're really no different than anyone else. Out law enforcement professionals like Anthony Morgado are making a huge difference in the rank and file of their own departments. And I firmly believe that, like has happened in the rest of society, as more LGBT people come out in law enforcement, the faster homophobia will fade. But the public needs to provide support and pressure to make this happen. We need to stand and cheer when law enforcement participates in our pride parades and events, and we need to put pressure on the profession for more training and education on LGBT issues and our community. After all, it's our tax dollars that are paying for all of the litigation that arises from homophobia in law enforcement, and so our interest is vested on many levels. And it's important to remember that the vast majority of working law enforcement officers on the street are truly good people with good hearts who are doing a very difficult job. But they deserve to be working in an environment that is supportive, inclusive, and free from racism and homophobia. If you'd like to read more about this issue, go to our website at outbeatnews.com. You'll find links to the Williams Institute studies mentioned during the show. I hope you've enjoyed this Outbeat Extra. Tune in next Sunday night for Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCB Radio. In the meantime, have a great week, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us.